Love Simplicity Project. This is an ISP short by your host, Jordan Harris. You can find the full copy of this at jordanthecounselor.com in written form. Today's blog is, am I a good counselor? Three metrics for assessing your effectiveness. My brother-in-law is the Sherlock Holmes of small engines. Over the summer, I was riding my lawnmower, hit a particularly thick clump of grass, and my lawnmower started to smoke. I jumped off and called my brother-in-law for advice. Oh, it's the belt, he said, without a doubt. The belt? Yeah, for the blades. I mean, turn it on while listening over the phone if you want, he said. So I did. After about two seconds, he piped up. Yeah, it's the belt. What probably happened was, when you hit that patch of grass, the blades tried to keep turning, but hit a soft spot in the belt. And the belt began to, began to smoke. This guy diagnosed my problem within two seconds and then confirmed it by listening to the sound of my engine over the phone. Like I said, the Sherlock Holmes of small engines. A few weeks later, I mentioned that he was probably underappreciated by his customers. He works at a small engine repair shop and can diagnose most problems in 10 minutes or less. Most people don't understand how much work goes into being that good. So when he charges them 80 bucks, it sounds, it just sounds like too much money for not a lot of work. It makes it look too easy. Yeah, sometimes it sucks. They don't get that it took 20 years of working on engines to get that good. But it's the same for you, I'm sure. He said, you got your doctorate so you can learn how to do therapy and really fix people. In that moment, I felt the pang of imposter syndrome. I am not the Sherlock Holmes of therapy. I think imposter syndrome has three parts. It's the shame we feel. That's the first part. When people expect us to be really good at something, that's the second part. And we know we're not that good, which is the third part. We typically focus on the first part, empathizing and validating people so people won't feel the shame. We remind them that they are good enough. We empathize that we all feel we're not enough at times. We validate the hard work that they've done to get to where they are. But this blog is focused on a contrarian approach. Let's focus on actually getting good. Because my hunch is, while you might still struggle with shame, it's impossible to feel like an imposter if you're good at what you do. For instance, I don't feel like an imposter when I'm brushing my teeth or driving on the highway. I know how to do, I know how to do those things. However, once I tell people I'm from the north, they instantly assume things like, oh, that means you can parallel park, which I can't. I'm horrible at it. It's when the gap between the expectations and my ability arises that I feel a pang of imposter syndrome. The problem is, how do you actually know if you're a good therapist? Not just think you're good, but know you're good. Over the past few years, I've thought a lot about this question. Most researchers say that since therapists are really bad at self-assessing our own effectiveness, we need to use objective outcome measures. We need to give weekly surveys, like the OQ45 or the SRS, ORS combo, or the core. I'm a big fan 
of tracking your outcomes using objective outcome measures. But the more that I've thought about it, the more I've come to believe you don't have to do that. At least not starting out. Tracking your outcomes is incredibly time intensive. And most of us just need to know if we're good enough. As I've thought it over, I've come to believe that there are three metrics you could track right now to see roughly how good of a counselor you are. Metric one is your first session dropout rate. Because first session dropout sets the stage for the rest of your caseload. Basically, the lower this number, the better. The average first session dropout rate is 30%. That means that for most clinicians, at least 30% of their clients do not come back after the first session. That's average, though. And there's some nuance into that number. Maybe I'll write a post about that later. But from experience, from personal experience, don't let let me say this. Don't let the industry standards set your expectations. If you're in private practice, you could have a first session dropout rate of 0%. It's totally possible. I know because my first session dropout rate is 0. My dropouts start at session 3. And then I have a small cluster around session 5. It wasn't always this way. A few years ago, I could not build a caseload over 16 clients because my dropout rate was too high. And in grad school, I almost didn't graduate because I couldn't get my hours. Clients kept dropping out. So I know from personal experience that you can improve your first session dropout rate. That being said, if your first session dropout rate is 30% or lower, then you're good enough. And you're clear to move on to metric number two. Metric two is joint terminations. You want about 50 to 64% of your clients to have a joint termination session with you. There are two mistakes I've seen with this metric. The first is therapist saying, oh, my joint termination number is pretty high. I had a client call me the other day and tell me that they were done with therapy. That's a client informing you that they're dropping out. That's not what joint termination means. Joint terminations are usually client-initiated and are negotiated between client and therapist and end with a termination session. The second mistake, which I made often, is not negotiating the termination with clients. See, I used to regularly give clients outcome surveys, and when they scored really well, indicating that their symptoms were in at least remission, if not full recovery, I'd bring up termination and we'd terminate. And then, a month later, I see them in the lobby with another therapist at my group practice. Yeah. Turns out, I wasn't negotiating termination with my clients. Instead, they felt pushed out of therapy. Starting in 2022, I changed how I, do, how I did things. I don't have numbers for this yet, but for the first time, I'm actually having joint termination sessions. Since this has started happening, something else has started happening. I'm starting to get client-generated referrals. Metric three is a client-generated wait list. 
unlike the other two, this metric is not validated by the research. To me, it just makes sense. I mean, there's a reason that Chick-fil-A always has a line backed up to the highway, and every Apple store has a line to the food court. When you do good work, people tell their friends. The trick is, you want a client-generated waitlist. If most of your clients come from the local physician, pastor, principal, that's not the same as helping one client who then tells all their friends they have to see you. Honestly, I think this metric is the mother load. If you have a client-generated waitlist, that means you're so good, clients are knocking down their door to come see you. The danger is, maybe you're only really good at helping a certain type of client. So those are the ones who religiously refer their friends and families to you. I think that's much less of an issue if you score well on the other two metrics. But even if the other two metrics are poor, I still wouldn't recommend you try to boost your other two metrics by becoming better with all clients. Instead, look at the commonalities of the clients you helped really well. The ones who consistently refer to you and build the business around those clients. For instance, if I look at my caseload, the clients who tend to refer to me tend to be couples. On the other hand, the clients who have bombed the most with are kids and young teens. So instead of trying to be a better therapist in general and getting more trained, more training to see kids, I'm doubling down on seeing couples. If you're getting referrals, take the time and identify the commonalities between the clients that you help the most. Once you do that, boom, you just found your niche. So, how do you actually use this information? Well, you need to look at your past 60 clients, even clients who came just for one session, and see how your numbers measure up. If you hit the benchmark for first session dropouts, then you probably need some coaching. If you hit the benchmark for joint terminations, you're probably doing well enough as is, and you're a decent therapist. And if you hit the benchmark for client-generated waitlist, then, you know, maybe you're a rock star. Just remember that these numbers aren't absolutes. They're a simplified way to get a rough estimate of a few metrics. In most cases, this is good enough. So, if you've got a ton of first session dropouts, get some coaching on your weak areas. And if you got a client-generated waitlist, well, maybe you don't need to worry about going to that trauma training. They're probably good enough at what you do. In the old stories, Sherlock Holmes was always accompanied by Dr. John Watson. He chronicled what it was like to be Sherlock Holmes. I have a hunch that the author wrote Watson as a doctor to showcase how brilliant Sherlock Holmes was. I mean, doctors are still considered the most educated and intelligent among us. So, if Holmes made a doctor look dumb by comparison, then his talents tower over the average man. I realized a while ago that I would not be the next Sherlock Holmes. But maybe I could be the next Dr. John Watson. And that's why I write this blog, to make some practical experience, a little math, 
and the research and the research literature and document the path for the next Sherlock Holmes. And who knows? Maybe that's you. Best, Jordan the Counselor. Thank you.